Just another uh, word of introduction, if I may. In the context where I am, where generally the pre people have worked on preaching a great deal, um, they notice that we're doing quite a lot more on structure and tactics and process and all the rest of it. And so everybody wants to know about our process. And I get flown out here by Peter and others to talk about process. When I arrive here, I find you've actually got quite a lot of process. You know, um, Scott's written most of the papers on, on most of the things that we need to do. And I want you to understand that getting clear structures and processes and strategies for ministry, all that does is straighten the pipes. It doesn't pump anything down the pipes. Um, it is actually the Bible teachings, the Spirit of God through the Word of God that pumps the church down the pipes, if you like. So, um, honestly, I'm not just saying this because I'm supposed to. Honestly, our church has grown from 35 to 60 adults and planted nine churches because we teach the Bible. Now, my senior, senior assistant, who's a um, management consultant, has been enormously helpful in the last three years. I've learned so much from him in clarifying our process and structures. And, and yet he knows, and he's kind of trying to learn, okay, but what is the engine that grows the church? This is the engine that grows the church. So if you want to know how how to grow your church. Yeah, get all the structures right. Learn all those processes. All, those all you're doing is getting the pipes clear, clear, removing the blockages, taking out the bottlenecks. Critical to do it. And if you're good at preaching, you'll need that. And effective ministries, all these guys can help you get those pipes nice and straight and clean and shiny so there's no blockages, there's no obstructions, there's no uh, obstacles anymore. But then you've got to preach your heart out. And I don't mean just on Sundays, I mean in small groups, in one-to-ones, over a beer, with us here. And, and this, is what, this is what grows the church. So when we got Michael Morrow to write his song, he wrote, Behold the Power of His Word is the name of the song, because you're looking at people who've been saved and transformed by the Bible. So it's, what we're talking about is delivering the Word of God into people's lives. All right? So here is, are you happy to Luke 13? Um, just it's a simple, So here's a parable. Let me read it with you. Uh, one of the issues, I, what I'd like one of you to do in a moment, or one of you can read it, then I'd like another of you <coughs> to read it with comment on the way through. Because what we're trying to do is to get the flow of the debate. So um, UNSFW nerds and scholars don't get fluency. Uh, often the scientists, so they can tell you the etymology of the words, translate language, they don't often listen to the fluency of the, of the, of the text. Okay. So, um, Peter, do you want to just read it to us in the right accent? And then we'll do some... <laughs> the wrong accent. <laughs> the wrong accent. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. And you will say, We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth, when you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob 
and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and, the, and first who will be last. Thank you. My practice when I'm preaching, I'm, I stand at the back of the church, I look at the congregation, I'm looking for the non-Christian guys and I'm looking for the toughest, hardest, most cynical, most radical bloke. He probably looks like you and is your size. He doesn't know the words of the songs. That's how you know that he's not a Christian. And I preach it to him. I don't look at him until one moment in the talk. The talk I'll be consciously picking that moment when I look at him. And I'll move on. Now that I will try and make sure that moment is the moment when I nail you between the eyes with the main point of this, this talk. And it may well be that God loves you. And it may well be that you need to change. But I'll save that moment for that particular person. There'll be other people who I'm conscious, because I know as the church gets bigger and I do less and less work on the staff, I don't know as much as I used to, which is why it's great to be small. I know that the phrases I'm using uh, are picking up particular people in the congregation. It's the language I use. So whatever you've been doing, with however many people you've been doing it, nails him, who he knows that I know that he's been having affairs. But however long you've been doing it, because I had a conversation with him, and uh, he's, he, he's admitted he's been you know, into hard porn for many, many, many years. For however long you've been doing it, God still loves you. Okay. And I'll be picking up people that I know with the phraseology that I'm using. And the reason I'm thinking about this non-Christian hard guy over here is every time I say something that sounds religious, I'm thinking, that sounds nonsense. And that, it's those explanatory phrases that change a religious sermon into something he understands. So I know that sounds a lot of rubbish, but... So I'm, so I'm using language. If I was in the pub talking to Mr. Hard Guy over here, and he, he said to me, that's a lot of bull, that sounds... Uh, sorry, I know that sounds really weird, but what I mean is this, and I explain it in my language to Mr. Hard Guy over here if we were having a beer in the pub. And that's what keeps me honest in the language all the time, because I'm preaching to somebody... Uh, who I've seen in the congregation. All right, let's, let's do it. Right, now I want you to walk through it. You're feeling confident because your church is going big. So <coughs> could you walk through this passage and, as it were, take each phrase and sentence, and after each sentence, tell us what he's saying. So, for example, you might say that Jesus went through the towns and villages, so he's, he's going through the various places in Galilee, walking along the streets, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's the capital city, and we know... Some, you know so just talk through, take a phrase, give us another phrase to explain what you're Try and give us the flow of the argument. <coughs> well, as you said, Jesus is going from towns to villages, so he's moving around. He said at the beginning of his ministry that he was going to do that, that he was going to take the good news about the kingdom of heaven to um, <coughs> and that he was going to put a pace on. Um, he was teaching people on his way to Jerusalem, which, as you said, is the capital city. And um, as he was going along, uh, there was someone who asked him about what's the consequence of all this teaching and how many people are going to be saved. Um, Jesus said to answer this question, a story, and the story was a story about... No, don't preach it. What I want you to do is read the words and uh, then explain them. Read the next words okay. then explain them. Okay, so uh, he said, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try and enter and not be able to. Um, 
that's a um, uh, hard phrase to understand at face value because as he's been talking about the kingdom of God there has obviously been concern from the hearers that they want to know how to okay this is an interesting exercise all good what I really want you to do is translate it not not comment on it yeah right so not be a commentary yeah, just translate it into language people can understand. Okay, so once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. Um, that's pretty self-explanatory. Yeah, interesting. No, you need, you need to say. So there's an owner of the so in Jesus' okay. story, there's an so owner of a house, Jesus tells and he wakes up. House, he wakes up. Okay, I'll get you next. Yeah, yeah. I said that twice already, but yeah. I think I'm starting to get. Yeah. Um, there's a house, um, the owner of the house gets up, um, closes the door, you'll stand outside knocking and pleading, even though um, the person standing knocking and pleading, asking for the door to be open, the owner of the house is going to say, no, I'm not actually going to open the door for you. Um, so I don't know this is very interesting, you're struggling with this. So you need to read the words, then translate them. Okay, so I'll take you a bit further with it. Yeah, right. So... Uh, You'll stand outside knocking and pleading, so people will be hammering on the door trying to get in, mm-hmm. and they'll be saying things like, Sir, open the door for us. So they're very polite. Please, would you open the door to let us in because we'd like to come in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's going to answer, so he'll reply, I don't know you're where you come from. So, um, no, you can't come in because I don't really know you, and I don't know where you come from. I don't know who you are. Then you'll say, we ate and drank with you. So there's a conversation going on. We ate and drank with you. We think we know you, and you taught in our streets. So we sort of know you. Uh, so you should be letting us in because because we know you. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. So actually, no, I don't really know you. Away from me, all you evildoers. You can't come in. In fact, get lost because you're evildoers and you're not allowed to come into, into my party. And, um, and then he says they'll be weeping there. So they're going to be really unhappy. And gnashing of teeth, which is a funny old phrase, but it means you know chewing your mouth off because you're so full of regret. So do you want to see it coming? Keep going. When they see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are the key ancestors, um, they will want to be associated with those people and the other prophets in the kingdom of God. But um, the owner of the house says, even though you you think you're a part of that, uh, you're going to be thrown out. And obviously that would be a very hard thing to hear and a terrifying thing to hear. Uh, People come from the east and the west and the north and the south and will take their places at the feast of the kingdom of God. So those people who thought they were in will actually be out, but others who are outside the kingdom will be brought in. And indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and the first will be last. And he, and he ends with a, uh, a statement there saying that he's turned their understanding and their world upside down. And the people who aren't expecting to get in, get in, and the people who are expecting to get in, don't get in. Brilliant. So the way you do the last bit is what I was looking for. And what's interesting is... You could preach that, and that's all you need to do, and you could pray a prayer at the end. Now, what I'm trying to expose there is that the rudiments of a sermon is explaining the text. What you attempted to do was to comment. So what you're doing was bringing stuff that you know from elsewhere that's not there to add to what's there instead of just explaining what's there. So towards the end of it, when you started translating it, I began to understand what it says. Now, my understanding of preaching, that's what I want. I want Mr. Hardass over here to listen to what I'm saying and think, yeah, no, I can see. That's what it says. 
this bloke's not making anything up. All he's doing is just translating what I can see in front of me. So he looks a bit of a scrawny old bloke. I don't particularly like him, but I can see that it is what it says on the page here. It's what Jesus was saying. So I'm interacting with what Jesus is saying, not with you, who I don't particularly admire, and I don't want to be like you, and I don't know you, I don't trust you, you're probably abusing children, and you know, you're, you're a religious nut, and I don't want to be like you, but okay, I've heard of Jesus. I, you know, respect, he's a moral teacher, and this, he's saying, I can see it in front of me. Mm-hmm. I think that's what preaching is doing. Preaching is simply showing you what Jesus says, but people can't understand the language, so it's translation. Big debate in, um, in London recently, you know, whether we're contextualising. And, uh, you know, one preacher was saying, you know, we don't contextualise, the word does the work. And the other guy was saying, of course we contextualise because people are coming from different backgrounds. And I tried to, tried, I offered some meaningless tweet and she said, isn't the word we're looking for? Translation. All we're doing is translating the word so that people can hear Jesus for themselves. That's what all I'm, all I'm doing. Now, in some contexts, you need to be more selective. You just pick two or three main, major things. My general practice is to say a bit more, which is why I'm more of a machine gunner than an assassin. So Matt Fuller, for example, who trained under me, but he's more selective. And there are reasons for that. He's in a more transitory young congregation that are making choices to whether to go to HTB, which is the kind of Hillsong thing down the road, or come to his church. He, he can't push them too hard. I've got a church with people who've been with me for 25 years. And uh, so they can, they can cope with a bit more, some of our congregations. It's also a character thing. That's him and this is me. And I get excited about too many things. And, you know, whatever. Um, but I think that if all you did, if all you did on Sunday was stand up and translate the words in front of you, people can become Christians and can grow. And sometimes we're just putting so much other stuff in all we're doing is filling people's headspace and taking up time with stuff that isn't helping people to understand it so people can't hear the word of God. Okay, no. So, Bishop, can I ask, are you also telling Mr. Hard Guy even you can read the Bible? Yes. You can access God's word? Yes. You don't have to be the scholar? Yes. It's very interesting. Um, two, two stories. One guy who worked in a casino came along, non-Christian, and uh, he said to me, the first time I came to your church... He said, I was absolutely blown away. Because, and I came the next week, it was the same, and the next week after that. He said, every time I came, I felt like the Bible was speaking directly to me. And then there's a charismatic couple. Um, he's a huge rugby player. She's an architect who came from another church. She said, well, we really struggled when we first came. She said, because we were just not used to the intensity of experience that we felt every time we came, we were being spoken to. Personally, it felt like we were sitting there and bang! There was just so much impact from the Bible. She said, we nearly left because it felt so um, bruising. They stuck it out in their brain. And you said they had a charismatic background. Yeah, yeah, they'd been going to St. Michael's um, Southfields, which is a charismatic church up the road. And they started coming to us, from, you know, the South African and so on. And the difference was that suddenly it was the sermon that was impacting them. And it was confronting them. Yeah. But they found it bruising at first. They thought, you know, they were used to just coming along and having a happy time. Mm. Yeah, I think there was an article in the Gospel Coalition website recently and it was saying that church should be both comforting and challenging. Yeah. And I think 
my experience of charismatic and Pentecostal churches is that Just they're, all, they're all comfort. And yet you walk away feeling nice and happy, but there's been no challenge to your life to repent. Yeah. So if I hear what you're saying about that couple is they felt challenged for the first time rather than just comforted. Is that it is. But I, what I want you to understand is the challenge didn't come from me. Yeah, it came from the world. Beating them up. It came from Jesus mm-hmm. hearing the words of the text. So, and the other striking thing you would notice about the way I preach that, even when we get to the, the, um, the wickedness stuff, I will still be saying we, us. So for those of us who are struggling with alcohol, those of us who are really, you know, struggling to break out of hardcore porn, for those of us who uh, are just arrogant and proud because of our upbringing, those who are just bitter with envy, other people's bodies and husbands and whatever, for those of us struggling with these things, this is wonderful news for us. So I think of myself as sitting in the audience and I'm, I'm watching this, I'm hearing this text, it's preaching to me, and what I'm doing is really I'm showing you, what, when he says this here, it means this, can you see it, it means that? So all I'm doing is showing you this. So I just sent last night, uh, I was waking up, and I just saw Francis Chan's book, has just been announced saying um, preaching as the word of God and I immediately sent a text to my uh, operations manager do not uh, sell or commend Chan's new book because I think that's a lie preaching is not the word of God that's the word of God and preaching is about showing people the word of God. And I haven't read the book yet. It's probably brilliant. And I've just made a, you know, all I saw was the title. And I've made a characteristically, you know, ungenerous assumption the first time I saw it. But I am not going to be starting telling people that my preaching is the word of God. Mm-hmm. Or we're into cult land. That is cult life. That's the word of God. Now my job is to sit with you and show you, as my friend, Mr. Hard Guy, says, I don't know you or where you, I think what he's saying is this. And when it says, away from me, I think what he's saying is this. Um, and that communicates, I care about you, but we're both listening to the word of God, and all I'm doing is help you understand it. Mm. Okay? All right, so let's, now, how do we communicate this? Because especially Mr. Hardguy's come in and wishes he wasn't here. Um, actually, he probably wants to hear more than the, the, the bored person who's come along wireless. Slack. Anyway, okay, let's try and work out some structure. The structure and clarity um, provides emphasis. And um, I'm sure you've heard loads of talks before on, you know, you want two or three points. You don't want too many points because what's the point of doing that? People can't remember them all. But you need some points to break up the one theme of the text into a couple of issues. Um, otherwise, uh, all you would do is just um, preach the whole text and you've not broken it down into, into any constituent parts and learning is about the relationship between the whole and the parts. So you want a few parts and a whole. Alright, let's just work on it. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him. Okay, it looks to me like that's general context in verse 22. So I would do that. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Okay, I'm the scholar, I'm not a great scholar, but I'm the scholar, I know that since chapter 11 or whatever it is, He's been making his way through Galilee. He's on the way to Jerusalem to the line. So here's a sort of general context setting. Now, um, what I recommend to my preachers, um, 
is that they, they have they think about three stab points. So um, I don't even know how to do stab points here, but this will be um, so this will be the question or issue that the passage will uh, address. Uh, let's try and get this up to what is that? You think fourteen? Um, so the first one is the question or issue that this passage is going to address. I don't know what it is yet, so we'll do that right at the end. So I'm going to set up the, the talk that's coming. The second um, stat point that I normally have uh, is the general context of what it's got. What is going on? What are we reading here? And so on. And it seems to me that verse 22 is that general context. And Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching the various ways of Jerusalem. Now, I'm this is your context. I'm sorry, this is your structure for every passage? Uh, it's where I start in my thinking. Okay, yeah. uh, ditch it if you need to, but this is what I'm telling my junior <coughs> preachers start with this. So, question or issue, general context, specific context, two or three points. Conclusion. And in the two or three points, you state your point, make your point, explain your point. Sorry. State your point, explain your point, illustrate your point, apply your point. Do that two or three times and conclude. And I'm asking my preachers to do that all the time. Um, so we don't know yet what the question or issue is. Here then is the general context. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Sorry, Richard, what was yep. the last one? Illustrate and apply. apply. That's your classic Jabbo three. Oh, yeah. I don't know what that's doing, but anyway. No, more than 20 minutes. <laughs> uh, yeah, you've got to be a pretty bad preacher to only be able to do 20 minutes. If you aim at 20 minutes, do 25 minutes, you're fine. Now, he, he always said that it, for every minute that you went over 20 minutes, they yeah. forgot five minutes. That's probably fair. Yeah, and he often went over 20 minutes. He always did. And it was always a brilliant 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here's my three introductory stat points, classic ones. Question or issue, don't know what it is yet. General context, Jesus walking through the towns of the teaching has made his way to Jerusalem. I'm thinking to myself, as I look at this passage, uh, there's nothing here about the cross, it's all, there's a lot about judgment, and, and uh, so where am I going to talk about the cross? This is my opportunity to say something about the cross that I want to, because the general context is he's on his way to die in Jerusalem. So it's the one extraneous thing I'll forgive any preacher is if they break halfway through into any verse and say, by the way, can I just explain to you the cross? Uh, I'm okay with that. Okay? That's weird. Um, someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? So that is the... Then, so you said talked about three broadish questions. What's the kind of... Uh, what's the big question this is on? What's the profound kind of piece this is trying to tackle? The yep. question Two, what's the general context of this passage? Yep. What's the specific passage? You sharpened it up to the, the question that's being asked, yep. reasonably obvious from this one. Then you said there's a, probably a fourth, subtle, slightly subtle one, which is what's the Christological kind of cross I wouldn't have any more... That's no, you, a background so the Christological thing is in my approach. Yeah, it's not. Um, no, it's not a front. Root, not a root term, but you're, it, you are asking it somewhere. I don't want to preach without some sort of touch base on the Christian. I'm assuming that all. So Jesus says that the whole Bible contributes to our understanding of Him. Yeah. So my approach to any text is that every text, in some way, contributes to my understanding yeah. of the gospel about yeah. Him. Yeah. Um, and therefore, and it may well be that I've got other purposes as well. I'm, I'm launching a men's convention or it's the first day of a new church or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. So I may have both the general gospel context and also the occasional context of the date that I'm preaching on. Yeah. Um, but they have to do with my approach and what I'm looking for. Yeah. So they're almost like sidebar questions down, this, down there somewhere. Yes, they're in, they're yeah. in my head. 
but they're not in the text. I'm now I'm just looking at the structure of the text. And the other day you talked about approaching the whole Bible. Um, you're on wisdom literature. Yeah. You're still thinking the same thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that all the wisdom literature is to help us to understand Christ, in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are to be found. Yeah. So um, if I haven't got to Christ by the end of the sermon, I'm missing something. I don't mean that Christ has to be the conclusion of every sermon. He might be the introduction to the sermon. Yeah, okay. So uh, we saw last week that Christ is the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are to be found. Right, let's just look at some of what that wisdom is. Uh, you know, live for money, don't live for money. Uh, live for happiness, don't live for happiness. You know. So I don't mind whether it's beginning or end, but people need to understand that the whole Bible is progressive towards Christ, you know, was either promising him or reflecting upon him. Mm-hmm. And so he's the hermeneutical key. And so you're just explaining, it's very simple. The whole Bible's really to help us understand Jesus. So when we look at this passage, just kind of remember what does it help us to understand about Jesus? Or you might say, since the whole Bible's about Jesus, let me take, remind you of one thing about Jesus that help you understand this passage. Jesus is the kind of uh, expression of God's wisdom in a person lived and here's one aspect of it kind of drilled out over a couple of chapters of Ecclesiastes okay um, can I ask a quick question about uh, some of the some of Paul's letters um, this is I find this not too difficult to do with with narrative particularly gospels and things like that but when we get to Romans and Ephesians and things like that man that's where you need illustrations okay and do I so, come to that in the second one you do Yes, we'll do Revelation there, or we can do a Romans passage. So I've just preached through Romans, okay. and that issue did keep coming up. Yeah. Um, and so I began something a bit fresh. I worked really hard on my illustrations, and they really helped. Okay. So big illustrations for dense doctrinal verses. So you've got two verses, one verse, and a big illustration about snake in your bed. Uh, you know, second illustration, you know, big doctrine. And then uh, it's all about poking the snake and the snake trying to bite you and how you're going to kill it, you know. So you're following that illustration through. So you need big illustrations to help with dense text. Okay, thank you. Just working on the, the text. So, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? That's a specific question. Um, right. Um, let me tell you how I'm going to deal with these. So firstly, Jesus went through towns and villages teaching his way to Jerusalem. Okay, um, he's going to Jerusalem. We know that he's on his way to die. We know that he's teaching about his death. He's explaining his death. He's explaining the swap. That is that he's come from heaven to swap places with us. Many people get confused about why the great supreme being out there will ever shrink himself down and become an ordinary bloke walking around Palestine. The answer is so he can swap places with ordinary blokes like us. He had to be ordinary. It's kind of confusing. He had to be ordinary, though, so he could take our place. And he was treated like us and punished for all that we do wrong to him and other people so that we can be treated like him and accept him to heaven as children of God fantastic thing and he's talking about it so this is not just a kind of uh, stroll through the countryside of Palestine admiring the birds and the birds and the, you know, and the flowers and stuff it's quite an intentional thing Jesus knows he's on the way to die the disciples are terrified uh, they're heading back to Jerusalem where he's hated Jesus says I'm going to get killed they're all confused what on earth are you doing and he's saying I'm going there to die for you and for other, anybody who will trust in me so that's the general context Second class. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Okay. Um, well, it's good this guy's asking questions. It's always good to ask questions. I remember many here today who are asking questions. But this question, given the context, that is, he's talking about his death, it's kind of 
It's a slightly conceptual and evasive question. It's a bit like standing on the Titanic and asking the captain, so then, Captain, um, how many people do you think are going to survive this tragedy? Do you think there's going to be a lot of people dead? Or do you think there's only going to be a few people dead? You know, is it going to be an absolutely dreadful tragedy? Or do you think there's just there's going to be a few people? Let's have a little um, discussion, Captain. And uh, that's what this question is like. Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Uh, apparently this was uh, something that the, uh, the teachers, the rabbis of the day, used to debate a lot. You know, how many are going to be saved? And it's a, it's a very conceptual, it's, a, it's an impersonal question. Uh, it's not about himself. It's sort of, um, let's have a chat about the philosophy of how many people are going to get saved. And actually, lots of people do this. So uh, what about the children who lived in the Amazon? What's going to happen to them, God? And um, what, about, what if you were born as a Muslim Aborigine? Um, you know, what's going to happen to them, God? It's like a sort of philosophical question. And some people spend forever discussing these things. And... Uh, Basically, then, Jesus ignores the question. It's like, it's like the captain says, I don't care, just get in the lifeboat. Okay. He says three things. That's essentially what he's going to say. He says, it's time to stop talking. It's time to stop evading the issue and get in the lifeboat. Right, And he does it. He says three things. Firstly. Sorry, can I suppose it, Richard? Yep. How long did it take you to work out the um, Titanic illustration? You didn't just think of that then. That's in the talk that you've got. How? Yeah, I've probably done you, this talk 50 times. Yeah, but when you uh, think back to when you first did it, did, you, did it start with a Titanic illustration? Did you bolt that in later? Okay, that's a really good question. It yeah. comes back to your question where you've got your dense doctrinal talk. <coughs> what you, like, like the big question behind that is... Yeah. You unpack the idea of someone asking a question. Yeah. You develop that into something quite, again, quite compelling. The guy is sitting in there. I'm asking questions like that. What about the Amazon dudes, etc.? Yeah. And yeah. You know, I've asked that question before. So you've connected him and pulled yeah. him in. Yeah. And now you're about to hit him in the head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just get in the boat, son. I mean, the hard work in the commentaries, which you do have to do first time you do a passage is to get clear what is it actually saying yeah and then when you've worked out what is actually saying you know is this is this guy being commended mm. and, I, and I worked out no he's not being commended because Jesus ignores the question mm. and tells him to do something completely different to what he's asking about mm. so clearly it's not being commended it's simply the occasion on which Jesus says some incredibly hard things, which we're going to get to in a minute. So, okay, so what is it? What is it happening? So it's just the occasion. It's a kind of uh, an evasive, impersonal question. Okay, now, the key to a really good illustration is to think, for the context that I'm in, can I make up, don't borrow anybody else's, can I make up an illustration that actually illustrates precisely what I've just said, the past, that text verse means. Now, usually what happens is you either borrow somebody else's illustration, which doesn't work in your context, or you get some quote that nobody cares for because it's come from the opera by Fidelius, you know, and nobody cares, you know. And, <laughs> and it's just... <laughs> yeah. So, so let me just imagine... So I'm now thinking fresh. I'm in Redfern. I'm speaking to, you know... 
uh, and I'm thinking, right, this is evasive questions. So this is a confession. I need a question. So it's like being down the, the Red Bull pub down the road, having some drink, having some drinks with mates, and someone comes yet running in and says, uh, place is on fire, fellas. You've got to get out quick. And somebody at your table turns around and says to the publican, so then, what do we call the publican, the bar owner, do you reckon a lot of people are going to die or do you reckon only a few people are going to die? And Jesus says, that's a really stupid question. Just get out. We'll talk about it when we're out, when we're all safe. We'll talk about it then. But now, get out of the pub. All right. So what I'm trying to think is, what am I, exactly am I trying to say? And how can I illustrate that in a way that is familiar and simple and clear and, and hopefully kind of exciting and uh, now of course there are all sorts of if you're making the wrong assumptions you know if the middle class white guy from England is assuming we're all down the pub what are you trying to say you racist you know so you avoid all those pitfalls by understanding your context that's why God wants you to be there and not you not to beam in John Piper yeah he's a better preacher than you but he doesn't know the people that you know that's why you need to be there Okay. So can I? Yeah, 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 that's good. That's good. Okay. Uh, now this is my point. Now my point is there's a door that will one day be closed, and I've jumped ahead, but um, I'm trying to make it a bit more interesting for you. So, get so is this your first point? This is my first point. There's a door that will one, one day be closed. Now uh, he said to them. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand up, socking inside, knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you, you taught in our streets. He will reply, I don't know you where you come from, wait for your usual doers. They'll be weeping there and gnashing teeth. So, it seems to me there are three sections here. There's a section that, that is, um, I don't know, there's no verse, this is 25. So 24 and 25 is a section describing make every effort to enter through the narrow door well that's actually an instruction that is going to be my conclusion at the end because that's what he's telling them to do but verses 24 and 25 is many are going to try and get in and they're going to be knocking and pleading on the door so that's descriptive then there's a conversation sir open the door for us he'll answer I don't know where you you'll say we ain't drunk with you he'll reply I don't know where you're coming from and then there's a change in section again which describes the outcome of all this. How do you move these things up and down? Yeah. The outcome, they'll be weeping there and gnashing your teeth when you see Abraham. So, I can't make it too complicated. So, what I'll do is just divide it into these sections, three sections. Because I think that's what the text does. If there's only two sections, I'll have two. But there's three. So, this is a description of what's happening. This is the conversation. And this is the conclusion. Now, I could put that into a conclusion of the Big Arab. It's an awful lot of text having a conclusion. So I'll make it a third point. Now then, what am I doing with my points? I used to laugh at my dear theological, my more college friends, who are theologically miles deeper than I am. And they, Peter Jensen had once told them that um, your outlines should be uh, intriguing and um, uh, don't tell everybody what it means up at, up, up at front. You know, make it... Uh, enigmatic. Enigmatic, you know. And so I'd see these, and they say, but, dot, dot, dot. Uh, and then verse 4, and, dot, dot, dot. Verse 5, then, dot, dot, dot. 
verse 10, you know, and so, dot, dot, dot. And I'm thinking, why are we trying to make this passage more difficult with all these completely incomprehensible points? What is wrong with making a passage clear and simple? What is wrong with telling everybody the, telling everybody the passage at the front, telling them in the middle, telling them at the end? I mean, for goodness sake. I thought the goal was for people to understand the passage. Um, so what I'm looking for is points that summarise the section I'm describing in an indicative statement. That makes sense. So if can I warn you against scaffolding? If you've got the past, the present, the future, they're not the points. They're comments on the points. So famously, for example, um, if you have um, like the Great Commission, you know, Matthew 28, and um, you have um, you know, a claim, uh, all authority is given to me, a command, make disciples of all nations, a promise, and lo, I, I will be with you. Okay. First, you've got an, you've got an existential problem with the four alls. Um, okay, you struggle with that anyway. Um, let's say you get over that. What's the problem with a claim, a command, and a promise? The problem with it is, none of those things tell you what Jesus said. They're a description of what Jesus said. So actually, what you're doing is you're saying to your congregation, don't listen to what Jesus said, listen to my three comments. And they don't mean anything. What does a claim mean? Nothing. What does a command mean? Nothing. What does a promise mean? Nothing. So actually what you're doing is you're giving them six points, you're telling them the three that aren't in the text, and you're hiding the three that are. Alright? What you're really doing is you're giving them the scaffolding. So what Jesus actually said is, all authority is given to me. The second thing he said was, go and make disciples of all nations. And the third thing he said was, I'll be with you. Why on earth would you replace those three things with a claim, a command, a promise, which is nothing to do with what he says. Now, what it is is a description. So if you want to put some comment in with what he said, then you might say he claimed to have all authority. He commanded us to make disciples. He promised to be with us. Now at least you're telling us what he said with some comment in it. Okay? So, and again, you know, if it's, if it's kind of... Um, uh, if, it's, if you're going to do something which is not an indicative statement, you have a good reason to do that. You know, it might be that it's really exciting. The first word is bang, the second word is it's explode, and the third word is crash. You know, okay, that's great, because it's so memorable. Uh, do it one word. Otherwise, if you've got a good reason to do it, why not make it something that the guys there in church for the first time can understand, even if you weren't standing up? So I've put here, there's a door that will one day be closed. Now, of course, how you relate the, the, um, the points also helps because if your points relate to each other syntactically or musically, if you like, uh, you're suggesting that the points have equal weight. So um, I can't remember. There's a door that will one day be closed is my first one. The second one is something like um, Jesus' friends are welcome to stay. And thirdly, it's, uh, it'll be terrible to be left outside. Simple words which tell you what it says. Okay? Happy? So, firstly, there's a door that will one day be closed. Um, so, the way I'd deal with this is this. There's a door that will... He says, firstly, there's a door that will one day be closed. There's a door that will one day be closed. Look at verse 24. He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. So, what I do on my... By the way, all my points um, have exclamation marks, which everybody laughs at. Uh, the reason is because I'm consciously trying to say, here's something dramatic. 
There's a door, but we'll never close. And there are the verses. Now, you might get the impression from the way I'm doing this that I've got the point, and then the, the Bible proves what I'm saying. And sometimes young preachers say stuff, and they say, do you see, they say, so Jesus says such and such, do you see in verse 24? Now, actually, I'm doing the opposite. So I'll say, there's a door that wants to be closed. Let's look at verse 24. So what I'm actually doing is going to read the text to show them that the point simply summarizes what Jesus says. So what Jesus is saying, what the text says, is leading. So you always start with the text, then explain it. Start with the text, translate it. So there's a door that wants to be closed, verses 24, 25. Now let's look down at uh, number 24 there. He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to... By the way, when I'm reading text for hard ass over here, I'll often shorten language and read it the way... You know, so he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Uh, once the owner of the house gets up, closes the door, you'll stand outside knocking, pleading, sir, open the door for us. So what I'm showing to Mr. Cynical over here, he said, don't have to read the Bible in the old-fashioned language of school. You can do it in the language that you normally use. In other words, this is for today. So that's what I'm trying to do. Um, right, so what am I doing in my explanation? So I've state, stated the point, I've read the passage. Right, now I explain the passage. So explain this point. So, um, let me explain. So Jesus is describing a narrow door which is clearly the way into some banquet or feast. And in the Bible... Heaven is always described as a banquet or a feast. It's got nothing to do with um, uh, angels on clouds playing harps and really boring things like that. It's, it's, it's a party. It's a feast. It's a, a wedding celebration. It's a great, sociable, fantastic place to be. So that was, um, you know, you know, think, you know, huge steaks and pavlovas and, and fine wines. And at that point, there you go, cultural. So, you know, the beer, you know, barramundi, whatever it is, your guys love feast. All right, think feast. There's a door into the feast. Everybody's welcome to come. The door is narrow. So I'm going to say, so first thing, it will go something like this. We'll go uh, feast. Uh, so the feast. Uh, door open. Narrow. Why is it narrow? Uh, that's my theological work. So I'm trying to work. Why is it called a narrow door? It's a bit like the narrow gates, the narrow road, and all the rest of it. I take it, therefore... Um, this is a door you don't just wander in accidentally with a crowd. Uh, it's, it's quite, you could easily miss it. You have to make some effort to find it. And when you go through it, you go through on your own. So you don't go through this door just by being in a Christian family or going to a Christian church or going to Christian, being in a Christian country. Uh, it's, it's narrow in the sense, you know, elsewhere it's a bit, di- you know, it's quite difficult to go through. So it's a bit like a narrow path along the coast. Um, you can't just wander anywhere you like. There is some discipline to the Christian life. You have to do what Jesus says. You have to follow him. The view is fantastic, I might say. It's a brilliant way to go, but it is a narrow way. You, have to, you, know, you can't just choose your own way. You have to actually follow Jesus. That's why it's called narrow. It's not narrow as in bigoted. It's narrow as in particular. Because so you, you've got to address that. Your people are thinking, narrow. I don't want to be narrow. So he's not saying you have to be narrow. He's just saying because Jesus was the most tolerant and lovely... No, not tolerant. He's the most loving and generous person you'll ever meet. Uh, but following him is a particular path. Uh, so don't make it up, you have to follow him. So it's called a narrow door. 
Can I just pause there for a So could you just go through what you just said then and show us why that's not commentary, why that's description? Uh, it is commentary, but it's translating the words. Okay. So all I'm trying to, to stop you doing is, um, back in Isaiah, there's a description of feast. Let's turn to Isaiah mm-hmm. and... and you know, the guest is thinking, why are we, what's Isaiah? I mean, I don't understand this. Um, so is that our biblical theology <coughs> framework that keeps us doing that all the time? It's the, no, it's just that you're bringing the work from the office into the sermon. Right. Leave it in the office. Uh, yeah. Well, I think what I heard you say, correct me if I'm misunderstanding what you're saying, but in my own preaching I can easily slip into cliches. So, you know, I've got all this stuff going on in my head behind the scenes... And you know cliches that I've heard, things that I've been reading or learning, but and I bring that into the passage, which the passage may not necessarily be saying. Yeah. So you're saying avoid that. All that work in the study is to help you to understand this so clearly and simply you can explain it to your mate in the pub. What you're doing in the preaching is explaining it to your mate in the pub. And instead, what it's like is like a like a like a an exegetical essay. So too often it's an essay for college students, as if your college professors are all sitting there mm. critiquing your hermeneutics and your exegesis. That's done in the study. Leave that behind. All that's trying to do, study and brilliance and learning, is to help you to be simple. So when I said Jesus has come to swap places with us, that is years of studying the doctrine, reformed doctrines of the atonement. It all boils down to a four-letter word, called the swap okay so I am a learned man because I can you are a learned man because you know the atonement boils down to swap so Richard if you've got people in your congregation who've been Christians for years and some do are non-Christians right good question and there's all these different groups and you try and preach simply and then particularly to non-Christian people and then what about when you get feedback from people saying, oh, the preaching's a bit simple, yeah. I'm not learning much, what would you answer to that? Okay, so what, what, you do want to, what you do want to do is address the complex doctrines of Romans and the rest of it, then you explain it simply. Right. So, for example, on Sunday I was preaching in Korea, it's in 2 Corinthians 5, um, um, the love of Christ compels us because um, we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died, and he died for those that should know them. So, so what I said was, uh, Jesus... Um, Paul feels compelled by the love of Christ because of two convictions. He tells us why he feels so overwhelmed by the love. Two convictions about the cross, about the death of Jesus. Technically, they're called substitution and representation. The first one, substitution, is one died for all. Let me tell you a story. Helicopter bloke saving swapping places, none of that. Do you see how one bloke died for the rest? That's the doctrine of substitution. One took place. The second thing is, is representation. All right? So that when Jesus died, we all died. Let me tell you a story. Do you know who Wayne Rooney is? Right? The Jason Park is in Korea. Jason Park. Jason Park scores the goal, and all the Manchester United supporters yell, We've scored! We've won! But only one man kicked the football, but he represented everybody else. Right? When Jesus died on the cross, he represented the rest of us. Incidentally, that's why the theology of king in the Bible is so important, because the king represents the people. Mm. He's the captain who represents the rest. He's Jason Park represents Korea. Now, those, that's two complicated doctrines, but if you understand them well enough, you can explain them in simple language. So you said, said, it's interesting that, the, the, that there are the two there. And then you can sometimes say, uh, for those of us who are Bible scholars here, by the way, 
Uh, there's a lot of emphasis on the second, that is representation and our union with Christ. Our, our trusting in Jesus means we share in his experience, union with Christ. Don't let, don't let your understanding of our union with Christ make you forget the first, which is substitution, that Jesus was there and we weren't there. So you need to hold both things. You're, you're actually at that moment dismantling a global debate about the importance of the union with of the doctrine of union with Christ and justification by faith. And why Philip Jensen is suspicious of union with Christ language because he thinks he's emphasizing charismatic experience. But that's why you need to emphasize justification by faith. But he's wrong. If you're going to hide it, you've got to do both. So you're basically saying, let's do both. And you're, the guy who's come for the pub is thinking, I didn't get all that, but that's interesting. Okay, but you've got bloke from a helicopter in Jason Park. <laughs> It's partly the answer to your question of the fact that this is not the only preaching to the church. You might well do a series on um, the cross and explain five words about the cross or something like that. Yes. Series, and you've done Romans, which will obviously mean that you will have done more of the kind of, if you like, Yes, I've preached, preached through Romans three times from all the way through. The first time I did it, I was a young preacher and I was struggling with uh, just getting to know Romans. The second time I did it, I did it about eight years ago, perhaps nine years ago, and I was wrestling with Kostenberger and the commentaries and trying to work out the doctrine of Romans. I did it this year. I decided I was going to do it for the congregation for the first time. And I interacted with um, Keller's commentaries on it. The first volume was brilliant, the second column volume I think is weak um, and I deliberately didn't harass myself about the fact that I didn't have time to do much work on the commentaries and I actually just preached the text for the people and they loved it mm. they loved it because it was simple but you are now 20 years more Correct. experienced all of those doctrines are floating around your head justification etc etc et 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 so that, that informed what you said it does the simplicity that you just gave yeah, but at least if, you, if those of you who are younger in it yeah. You want to get to the point where you yeah. don't, you're not doing Kostenberger. Yeah. You only go outside of the text if the text, if my big idea forces me, I really need to explain something. That's why I went back to Isaiah. Almost never. Yeah. Almost never. Because when they're doing their quiet times, they don't do that. Yeah. But if you're preaching on Acts 2 and it's Peter's speech and he's got the text of, you may say something, you might possibly, may not be necessary because it's all there in Acts anyway. Yeah. But there may be some occasions where it's necessary to your goal to explain something from. The truth. The truth is now I never do that. Okay. Yeah. When Philip Jensen came and he spent three months with us at church, he loved being with us and we loved having him. But even his second reading, the Old Testament reading, I was tearing my hair out thinking, you know, you're using up another five minutes of brain space here for a passage in Joel, and a lot of our people here don't even know how to spell Joel. You know. It's just not helpful. Mm. Mm. You know, they're not, they're not short of... Nobody ever says to me at the end of church, could we have a bit more? Nobody's ever said that to me my whole life. Mm. Uh, and so I, I'm not convinced that we need the second reading. We need the second reading of the study. And if you're doing Bible study with senior people, yeah, yeah. go there. You know, look at every stuff. But Sunday church, you've got non-Christians there. This is front of house. People arriving at church. Preaching the gospel, um, we're not preaching to theology. You know, kids, people who've come through years of 
the church and, and all we're doing is, is you know they've got no background um, could I ask a question would that depend on the on the the other passage that you choose like if you, you choose a if you choose a second passage that really well informs the main passage yeah would that be more helpful? Whereas if you pick something super random where they just go... I, 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 I actually don't want to fight you on this because I, I may well be wrong. Okay. Right? I may well be wrong on yeah. this. But at least I can tell you the reason why. Because yeah. I'm, try, I'm trying to save my brain space yeah. for the passage I'm explaining. Well, I, I guess my struggle is that um, I'm pretty convicted and horrified that a lot of people sitting in front of me on a Sunday are not reading the Bible anywhere except on Sunday. And I'd like them to have a taste of other bits as well rather than just uh, what they hear in the talks. Okay. Well, I mean, what you could do, of course, is have seven passages for every day of the week and you could, just, you could do all the quiet times back to back. Now, of course, that's the we argument. Actually, we actually tried that and Didn't work. tried it on Facebook and all sorts of things and yeah. no one was reading. Okay. Yeah. Richard, can I, can I just suggest something on the academic intellectual stuff. I, mean, I live up in the Upper North Shore and hear that, hear that a lot. I, I find that's code for, I'm used to being intellectually inspired, I'm used to reducing the Bible into a text. Um, when I've been challenged with application and making the, helping God's Word to speak to me personally in a convicted fashion, I never hear that comment. So when a preacher comes in and actually speaks the, God's Word, allows God's Word to come through um, and allows God's word to speak to people's lives. You don't. I, I don't hear that comment in those intellectual churches. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I, I think it's also true that a lot of middle class people want to stay babies, mm. and a lot of working class people are serious about knowing mm. God. I think a lot of people in Redfern and I can't remember where you all are now. I think often with the North Shore people, you want to say, "Grow up, will you?" Mm. You know, you keep asking for fifteen minutes because you really want to be Peter Pan. And, um, you know, you want everything in comfortable bite-sized bits. And um, but let me tell you, the people in China are begging for a Bible. And they'll spend hours every day on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. And the reason is you just want to fit 15 minutes of titillating stuff into your busy social program for Sunday. And uh, we're not going to be church like that. We're serious about following Jesus. You get half an hour. You've got a degree, for goodness sake. Grow up, will you? Some people. I don't mean that, but I do mean I don't want to pander to a middle class. Uh, please don't make me work. It's kind of please, something else. Yeah, please don't. I, I have a busy life in the bank, and I please don't ask me to use my brain on a Sunday morning. So, um, so is, um, you go for half an hour? Yeah. Mm. I aim at half an hour. I'm off from 35. Mm. It's funny about those comments because it's the middle class businessman that challenge me to get down to 20, 25, yeah. but I'm also trying to explain to them with so many people who aren't Christians and haven't even heard of who Abraham is, so I need that yeah. extra five. They've got TED Talks in their head, because they've all heard TED Talks, and they all know, you know, you've got to blah, 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 blah. Um, and sometimes it's because they haven't been born again very recently, they've forgotten how wonderful it is to be saved. Sometimes they're right, and we're inefficient, and sometimes they've got high-quality quality in their heads and we're being rambling but I've often got the teenagers saying oh I really got that today thanks yeah, for yeah. that or whatever and, and I decide I'm going to do something about this or, and then I get a middle aged guy to say oh you know there's a lot of content there and, mm-hmm. and I'm like oh okay that's an interesting kind of contrast well so, a, lot of, a lot of guys who are experts and senior in their jobs 
one of the things about becoming a Christian is very humbling. Yeah. Uh, you know, you often get the 55-year-old businessman who's an expert, mm. and he's expecting to be an expert in Christianity. Mm. He sits in front of you, That's and he's really struggling. Amazing. He doesn't know very much. Yeah. He hasn't read his Bible very much because he's been flying, jetting around the world. His wife's light years ahead of him. Now, that's why you need to do some men's work with them and do some one-to-one privately. That's where you can go deeper with them. I, I want to keep going on this, if I may, just I'm not going very far. So we've got feast, door open, narrow. So basically, so um, uh, I, the door will be closed. Now, at this point, I want to put the knife in. So I've, I've explained what this is. Now I want to apply it. So I'm going to... Because up until... I can't read verse 24. Uh, up until the but, people could be hearing it and thinking, oh, that's okay, because you'll open the door again and yes. I'll be let in. Well, the, the passage is saying... So I'm explaining the passage. So Jesus is saying, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. So I explain the feast. The door is open. It's narrow. The door will be closed. That's what Jesus said. So... At this point now, I need to illustrate and apply it. So I'm now going to give an illustration about a closed door. Right? This is how the story goes. So physically, um, by the way, at this point I'll be... Um, can I explain this? Explain this? Explain this? Explain this? I've been serious now for five minutes explaining stuff. Let me tell you a story. Physically, change gear, change position, change pitch, pause, all the rest of it. A uh, bit of a light moment now. Uh, a long time ago when I was a lawyer, and uh, I remember we got some tickets. So, um, I remember this story. You do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably don't. And the, re- the reason why, uh, Apple, the reason why, you'll, you'll understand why in a moment. So I'll, I'll stand up and give it to you. So a long, long time ago uh, when I was a, a lawyer, um, one of the guys at work gave us some tickets for the Royal Albert Hall to go to a concert. And so I invited my... Uh, rugby mates to come along because uh, I was trying to pretend I was you know, civilised and all the rest of it and um, notice what I'm doing there by the way I'm the story was about the Royal Albert Hall I'm trying to pick up both the middle class and I'm picking up the blokes and Mr Hardass over there who thinks I'm a wimp so anyway, so me and my, my mates we, we went for a few drinks beforehand and the show started at 7.30 and we got there at 7.35 and we piled out of the taxi and, you know, a bunch of arrogant lawyers in our suits and all this. We go up, there's a bloke in a, in a uniform, a pink cap on, he's standing by the door, and everyone's gone in. And um, he, he stood there, and the door was closed behind him. And we said, sorry, we're a bit late, we'll just slip in through the back. And, uh, and he said, sorry, sir, you can't go in, this, the performance has started. And uh, so I said, oh, come on, mate, you know. Because, um, you know, young lawyers always get their way. We'll, we'll make it worth your while, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, just let it slip in, which is quite no one notice. He said, I'm sorry, sir, you can't go in. And so I go, oh, come on, mate. Uh, just let us, we'll just be really, really quiet. Just let me in. You just arrive. You know, we got a bit late. Traffic was bad. And he said, he pulled himself up to the full height. He said, Sir, he said, this is the Royal Albert Hall. Uh, the doors are closed. You're too late. So uh, we actually, there was a half time. We had, to, we had to wander off. And I was so embarrassed and humiliated because, you know, I just assumed we ever get in and we weren't able to get in. And what I really worry about, guys, is that there'll be some people here who um, are going to arrive at heaven, and I don't know how it works, but whoever's going to be there, and we're going to say, oh, let us in, you know, we left a bit late, you know, just, we'll just slip in the back, no one will notice, you want to be in heaven, and so, so someone's going to say, I'm sorry, sir, madam, uh, this is heaven, the doors are closed, 
And you're too late. Okay, Jesus is saying something very serious here. You can spend your life poncing around, asking questions, doing your own thing, and just leave it too late to ever actually think about eternity and getting into heaven. And especially those of us who are middle class who think we always get our way. Money always gets us what we want. And we think we're going to arrive at heaven and do a deal, someone let us in. And Jesus is saying, if you leave it too late, the door will be closed and you're not going to get in. Okay, now the really important thing here is the silence. I'm serious. I'm eyeballing you and everybody else. It's not yet, I'm not ready for my big fight with you yet. But I am saying I'm serious, I mean this, and I'm, there's a bit of silence to register the fact this is a serious point. Okay, second point, change gear, that's the next thing. Okay, so that was an illustration to show the door will close. All right, second point. But he will answer, I don't know you're where you come from, and you will say, we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you're where you come from, away from me, all you evildoers. All right, now to summarise that, you could say... What, I mean, what is he saying? I don't know you. The people think they do know him. We ate and drank with you, that is, we socialised with you, and you taught in our streets. We heard your teaching, but he will reply, I don't know you, or where you come from. That's kind of, kind of old, you know, Hebrew way of saying, I don't know your family, I don't, I don't know you. We don't have a personal relationship. Now, what's going on here? This is the difference between being familiar with Jesus and having a personal friendship with him. Now, it's essentially negative. So one way, one version of this I've said, um, you know, you could say something like, unless you're a real friend, you can't come in. The trouble with that is the third point is very negative. And so I'm slightly anxious in this that I don't start on hell too quick. So um, what I, I think what I'll do, I haven't decided yet, but secondly, um, real friends of Jesus will be there. How can you say friends are not family? Because uh, these aren't... Jesus isn't saying you're not family. He just says, I don't know you. Yeah. Okay, now. So here we go. Bold, 16. What are the verses? Somebody tell me. Is it 25? 26, 27, is it? Uh, 25. Uh, 25 is about 26. But he will also don't know you where you come from. So it's 25. 25, 27. I don't know where you come from. Away from where you evil doers. Okay. Would so you now, put, would you put an only in there? Well, that's getting yes. towards the second. So it slightly heightens the sort of only the real friends of Jesus. Only real friends of Jesus will be there. Yeah. Okay. So I started to make it more negative. That's what I'm worried about. But I think it does more accurately summarise. Okay, what's going on here? He'll answer, I don't know you where I come from. So Jesus will say, this is a party for my friends. But I don't know you. Or where you come from is about, I don't really know you. Because when you know someone really well, you know, you know where they come from. You don't just know their name. You know, you might know the bloke in the office. You know what his name is because he's got a badge on. But if you don't know where he lives... You don't know anything about his family. You don't, you're not a real friend. So in other words, Jesus is making a distinction. 
You see, they then say, we ate and drank with you. Now, at this point, the translation comes in. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you. Uh, we came to uh, weddings uh, at the local church. Uh, we came at Christmas uh, and at Easter. Uh, you taught in our streets. We've heard your teaching. We like your book, especially the, you know, the Ten Rules thing. We really like that. And the Sermon on the Hill stuff, we really like that stuff about you know, being a kind person. We love that stuff. You taught in our streets. We know your teaching. We, you know, he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. That sounds a bit strong, although Jesus is actually just being honest. He's just saying that we're all evildoers. So the only way that evildoers can get into heaven is by being a friend of Jesus. Now, um, on the evildoers thing, I often tell an illustration. So here's another story I've really worked hard on. And uh, again, this is to do with, if you're not Jewish, uh, your guilt is rejecting your creator not breaking the ten laws of, of Israel. So I tell a story. I know you're also... So I tell a story and say, um, right, imagine two teachers. Let's call them, and I'll use them to illustrate, Scott and Phil. And they're coming to teach at, um, at Shaw College, let's say, in North Sydney. Pick something local. And um, uh, it's really expensive. They've just arrived. They've got, got to go somewhere. They look in the paper, and there's... Um, Everything's really, really expensive. And then they look, and would you believe it, there's a mansion for $10 a month. And they can't believe it. Uh, it's got uh, 14 reception rooms, three acres of stables, wet rooms, sports, you know, the rest of it. So they turn up, knock on the door, and it turns out the bloke is, um, he owns the Sydney Swans, or he, he owns a football team, do something local that you, you will recognise. He's a billionaire, and he's going away on business, he's going to live, live abroad for a couple of years, and he just wants someone to look after the place. He says, listen. He says, yeah, no, it is only $10 a month, but he said... Um, I want you to enjoy my place, look after it. I'll send you monthly emails and stuff. You just pay, pay your, your modest rent and um, stay in touch because it's a complicated place and I want you to look after it well. I'll, I'll be back in, in, in two years' time and if it goes well, you, you can stay on. Anyway, so they move in and they're very, very different. Here's a story for all the guys you're worried about. Uh, okay, Scott is a party animal. He takes the top floor, okay, and within a month, the place is absolutely trashed. There's uh, cigarettes um, marks on all the furniture. There's vomit on the walls. There's beer on the carpets. Several travellers are living upstairs. And everybody knows, everybody's worked out, that when the owner returns, Scott is going to be out in his ears. He's absolutely trashing the place. But Phil is completely different. Phil moves into to the West Wing, and um, he's very, very tidy. Uh, Phil is well, very well brought up. Uh, he's in bed by 9 o'clock every night. Uh, he polishes the, the, the door handles. He licks the windows clean. Uh, he wears turn-ups in his pyjamas. Um, you know, all buttoned up to here, and uh, he's so tidy and so so well brought up, so polite. Everybody thinks that when the owner comes back, well, he'll be allowed to stay forever. I mean, you know, he's, he's the model tenant. Anyway, two years later, the owner comes up, and would you believe it? He throws them both out. Everyone's astonished. Now, did anybody ask the owner? The owner said this: "Look, I know they lived very differently. I know Scott trashed the place and Phil was very tidy, but actually, they treated me exactly the same." Neither of them bothered to pay the small rent. Neither of them responded to any of my, my messages. I kept sending emails to them. They ignored them all the time. I think they must have thought I was just an idiot to let them into my house. And I'm sorry, if they're going to treat me like that, they can't stay. And you would think, fair enough. Now, I'm telling that story to illustrate the different ways we treat God. Some of us have trashed the place. There is wreckage everywhere. Okay. You know, we've gone through several marriages. We've wrecked our health. 
There's, there's mess everywhere. We know we're in trouble with God. Nobody needs to tell us. It's obvious. We know it. Everybody else knows it too. But there are others of us who are so polite, well brought up and tidy, we think God must be feel very privileged to have us in his world. But actually we're living in his world, we're enjoying good things that he's given to us, and we've ignored him all our lives. And in very different ways, we've treated God the same way. And Jesus is saying, if you treat God that way, you can't expect to live in his place forever. You're going to be asked to leave. And these people are saying, yeah, but we're familiar with you. Jesus says, but you're not really my friends. You know about me, but you don't know me. You've heard my teaching, but you don't, you don't know me. You're not my friend. And then I tell another story. And a lot of this is in the stories, you see. You're understanding the verses, and then you're illustrating them. So um, a few years ago, I came to study at uh, Bible College in Sydney. And uh, while I was here, sitting in the back row with Phil Wheeler, um, uh, the England rugby team came to town and a bloke called Rob Andrew who was um, the fly half at the time uh, he was a decent player I'd met him a few, few weeks before I came here at a drinks party we had a chat for, for, for half an hour I enjoyed my brush with celebrity he was playing for England and I was playing for university and, uh, and so on and uh, we, we chatted and I, and I thought you know, we're friends, we're mates, me and Rob and uh, anyway when the England team arrived I heard they were practising down at the Sydney Oval and so I went down to the Sydney University Oval to watch them practicing. There was Rob. He was practicing his kicking. And anyway, there was a bit of a crowd all gathered around watching them uh, practice. It didn't help them because they got thrashed by Australia a couple of weeks later uh, on, on the Saturday or whatever. Uh, but anyway, Rob came over to the side of the, to the, um, um, the pitch. He put down the ball. He was practicing his kicking. I said, hey, Rob, Rob, how are you? And uh, Rob looked up and he said, hi. And he just carried on kicking and practicing. And then he ran over to the other side of the pitch. And I felt about this big. And I thought, you idiot. You're not a friend. You're just an acquaintance. I'd met him, but I wasn't his friend. Now, I just want to ask you tonight, if Jesus Christ walked in this room and was greeting his friends, what would you say? Would you say, yeah, how good to see you. You know, Phil Wheeler, my old friend, it's good to see you. Gee, you made a muck up of your life, but pal, it's all over now. You and I, we've known each other for a long time. Come and, come and be in my place from now on. We'll sort things out. Scott, how good to see you. It's really good to see you. I know how hard it's been for you. Other people don't know. I know how hard that's been. Uh, it's really good to see you, my friend. Come here. And then... Uh, we're not friends, are we? Have we met before? I don't think so. What would he say to you when he comes to you? There's no point in fooling ourselves. Being acquainted with Jesus is not the same as being a real friend. Okay? And the silence twists the knife. Alright? Third point. What verse is this? 28. To 30. Let's try and be quick. I'm sorry I'm boring you now. It's going on too long. There you are. Just a quick question. Yeah. Is that the level of notes that you use? Uh... The first time I write talks, I have full text. Right, okay. Second, third, and fourth time, I'm full text. Tenth time, I'm just scribbling little notes in my Bible. And on Sunday, I probably won't bother with anything. I'm sorry about that. It's not, it doesn't reflect. All the work is, is in the past. Yeah, yeah, okay. Right. And, that's and uh, so, yeah, I know I, I want to be free of the notes. But no, I, I don't use notes. I just use a PowerPoint. But I was okay. just curious. Brilliant. 
a lot of the time I want to be careful about the particular wording that I'm use, using. And I've worked on those phrases. So I'm using phrases in the way I'm telling you the story. They're well, I've decided them carefully. Are we friends yet? No, I don't think we've met. Have we? But when, you, when you're talking to your young curates, early days, you're getting them closer, full text, uh, text that's been worked through carefully. So it's yeah. a spoken word, not a written word. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I want them to know it well enough that, that they don't have to read it. Yeah. So I, do, I usually have a full text, actually, when I'm preaching. Because it's usually the first time I've written that talk, so they're fresh talks. Sure. But I've written it, and I I'm not reading it. I'm often reading a little bit, and then I remember what I'm saying. Then my eyes up, and I can say what I was going to say. And I look up. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And, uh, and I'm looking over everybody. And then at the points where I want to be emotional, that's when I start propping my eyes, mm -hmm. and I'm starting fixing people. And at some point, I'm going to look at hard, hard man over there. Third one, it'll be devil left outside. They'll be weeping there, gnashing of teeth, when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. So, verse 28. Um, what am I thinking? Non-Christians thinking there, they'll be weeping there and gnashing of teeth, gnashing of teeth. You know, if you've been to chapel, you've heard that phrase before. So I want to engage with, you know, you know silly words, or no, funny words. I don't say the Bible, sorry. Funny words, but serious serious feelings so this is not talking about kids who don't have a quick cry it's talking about adults you know there's pictures sometimes you see of people just weeping with grief so so Jesus is saying there's going to be a crowd of people who are weeping with grief and the gnashing of teeth it's funny words but actually it's a desperate it's regret it's desperate regret why why didn't I go in earlier why have I left it so late why have I made this rookie error why did I do this gnashing of teeth desperate desperate regret when you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God so no surprises there then that's the point there you know all, all, the, all the people of God you know they're there in the feast they always said they were going to a feast I laughed at them at the time I ignored them I thought they were stupid and they'd be at the feast so there's no surprise there you know yeah, you know the Christian Union guys are always trying to get you to come to come to church. You know, perhaps some of the friends who tried to get you here here tonight. A bit on and on at you. Perhaps just a wife or a girlfriend trying to get you to church. Blah 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 blah, and they're going to be there in the feast. No surprises. The people who are followers of Jesus are going to be there in the feast, and uh, people will come from east and west and north and south. That is from all over the world. I will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Don't be fooled by the fact that Sydney and London, a lot of people are so so distracted by surf and and by money and by um, stakes and and uh, houses and boats that um, yeah, loads of people are not bothering the church anymore. <laughs> Don't make a mistake. I heard the other day there's a million Christians in Iran. Do you know there's more Christians in China than there are in the Communist Party? You know, in South America, people are turning to Christ in their millions. Africa's absolutely covered in people becoming Christians. It's happening all the time. Don't be fooled that just because we live in a very materialistic, distracted place, don't think that somehow Christianity is on its way out. There'll be people there from east and west and north and south. The whole world's going to be there. People from all nations. Jesus said, I promise you, we're going to have a multicultural feast. This is not going to be for a few white guys. This is going to be from people all over the place. I'm doing the language of my culture. You know, this is not just for the toffs from the North Shore. You know, there's going to be people from everywhere. 
or whatever it is, the bitterness that you know you can feel on that, everyone's going to be there. Indeed, there are those who are last will be first, and first will be last. There'll be a lot of reversals, a lot of surprises, a lot of very lonely, lowly, and ordinary people who haven't got much in this world. Sometimes the hardships of life do make people think about God. You know, quite often a divorce or an affair, uh, a, you know, a redundancy, it makes people think. And it's true, lots of people think, you know, does anybody love me out there? Is there any hope for life beyond the grave? Parting like bad and try not to think about it. When I lift my head and think, you know, the cemeteries are full. I'm going to die. Is there anything out there? And sometimes an illness, a cancer, bad news from the doctor. Uh, you know, I'm watching my, my uh, you know, you use whatever it is your thing that's scaring people. And, uh, you, uh, and you think, okay, so there's a lot of people who aren't successful and rich and glorious and flying around centre of attention, who are turning to God. Meanwhile, there are a lot of people, the first in life, and they're celebrities. They're so busy throwing parties, uh, actually they don't know God at all, and they're not friends with Jesus. And Jesus says there'll be a lot of social reversals in, in, in heaven, lots of surprises. And what I really worry about, guys, is people that I know... Um, you can imagine this feast and here I'm about to put the knife in this is describing a dreadful scene so that people can see through the door there'll be people outside the feast looking in through the door and they'll see their wives and their kids there and the kids will say mum where's dad and mum will say honey he, he, uh, he never really wanted to know Jesus in the front And there'll be fellas there saying, where's mum? I thought she'd be here. She came to church a lot. Yeah, I'm afraid it was all for show. She never really had a personal friendship with Jesus. It's just all about the social life. Hey guys, look, I don't know you. You know, I'm not going to pretend that I care massively about you guys because I don't, I don't know you. I'm on a plane tomorrow. Jesus cares about you, which is why he's telling you the truth. He's saying, don't make the mistake of getting so distracted in this life that you have no friendship with Jesus. That you're left outside, desperately regretting that you never took it seriously. So it isn't your wife or your daughter saying, where's dad? So what do we do about it? That was the moment when I just dropped my eyes on you for a moment. Where's Dad? I also did that thing of, you know, not trying too hard. You know, I love you guys. I really want you to... No, I don't even know you. You know, I'm the visiting speaker, so I'm not going to pretend too much. Because this is, for, this is a time for honest, straightforward speaking. So look, I'm not going to pretend... Now, if I'm the, the curate here, guys, there are many people here who I really, I've got to care about now. I've known you for very long. But I do care about you guys taking this seriously. Jesus cares a lot more than I do. He actually died on a cross for us. Okay? And the reason he says this, yeah, he's frightening us a bit. Yeah, he's doing that. Why is he doing that? He's just telling us the truth because he doesn't want us to be left outside. He wants us to be at the feast, having great fun forever in heaven. So what do we do about it? Jesus tells us. Conclusion. What is the conclusion from this passage? 
Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. That's what Jesus says. That is the application of this passage. So I've got a big arrow at the end, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. So um, you might say, look, you've got to make some effort. You've got, not got to f- no one's pretending that it's easy to work out Christianity. No one's pretending you get a friendship with Jesus like that overnight. You've just got to put some effort in. It's like any relationship. You've got to put some effort in if it's going to work. The nice thing is a church like this is pretty easy. Guys, I don't go to this church. I'm sure they run, they run one of those Christianity Explore courses or something like that. They're popular all over the world. Why don't you go for one night, two nights, give it a go, see if you like it. If you hate it, then don't come back. What have you lost? But don't tell me you've made some effort. You can't even be bothered to turn up. Jesus says, look, put some effort in. Make some effort. Make some effort to go, go through the narrow door. Then you'll be at the feast. Starts now, goes on forever. And you won't be left out. Make some effort. Kieran here, he'll probably tell you some stuff about when it, when it runs. And uh, I hope you really enjoy it. I hope you go through the narrow door, get to know Jesus, and have a fantastic time. Jesus is going to be brilliant. Just don't keep putting it off. Uh, let me finish. It's a bit like when I got married to my wife. Um, when, I, when I got married to Sean, I didn't know everything about her. I've been spe- I spent the last 26 years discovering all sorts of amazing things about her. She's discovered some pretty su- surprising and shocking things about me. But when I began my marriage with her, I knew enough to know that I wanted to be with her for the rest of my life. I didn't know everything. I just knew I didn't want to be without her. And it may be that for some people tonight, you want to go through the narrow door and start today. I don't mean you know everything about Jesus. You don't know everything. You just know enough to know you want to be with him forevermore. And you don't want to be left outside any longer. Okay? Some people here still need to find out more. Go to the Christian Explore course. Other people already know Jesus. You know he's fantastic. Some of us, why not today? Why not begin a friendship with Jesus? No more pretense, no more chat, no more evasive questions. Go through the door today and start a friendship with Jesus. How do you do that? You just say three words. Sorry, thank you, please. Sorry for what I've done. Thank you for dying for me on the cross. Please forgive me and be my friend from now on. Okay, that's the prayer I'm going to pray. Sorry, thank you, please. Okay. Comments, thoughts? Just ask a question on how you um, probably read on stuff like worldviews and idols and feeder beliefs and existential needs and things like that and yep. how to connect with people and um, so you you do it as you move it seems you're doing it as you're moving through the text. I do. Are you are you consciously doing that or you're just responding to what other issues out there you're drawing how do you um, I think if there are current issues, you know, if 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 the Prime Minister of the country died yesterday, yeah. it's up front. So I'll deal with upfront stuff. You know, today is Christmas Day, you know, blah, 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 that's up front. But when I'm in the text, I'm teaching the text. Because I just want to explain, I just want to translate this text. Incidentally, what's the opening issue then? So we didn't do the opening issue. Go back. What's the opening issue? My opening comment then is Have you ever regretted missing an opportunity? That's your existential link, you kind of. Yeah. So, what are the ways? Um, you say that again? Have you ever? Have you ever regretted a missed opportunity? So, and I'll tell some story about that. that and the way I'll do that is uh, talk. Morning. morning, everybody. Really good to see you. Um, can I ask you all a question? Don't answer out loud. That's embarrassing. But here's a question: Have you ever regretted missing an opportunity? Okay. 
So it might be um, an invitation to a concert or a party. Uh, it might have been a job offer. Uh, it might have been a sports match. And you heard afterwards, it's brilliant. And you think, ah, stupid me, why didn't I go? It was brilliant, I missed out. And you're, I, then I'll tell a story. I remember a time, somebody rang me up. Blah, 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 and it turned out it was Kevin Peterson invited me to go and watch you know, the England. I'm thinking, stupid, why did I miss that out? Right, I want to tell you today, <coughs> actually, to be honest, most of those things won't matter. For, they won't matter for a long time. I want to tell you today about an opportunity uh, that if you miss this, you'll regret this forever and ever and ever. Okay, I, want to, I want to show you that Jesus, Jesus is offering you something today, that if you miss this one, uh, you, you will just regret this forever and ever. Okay, so this is a, this is a big one. Right, let's get into the talk. So I'm hoping with a have I got your attention, this is what the passage is going to be about. So at the end, I might come back to that. Okay, why don't we take this opportunity? Here's a brilliant opportunity. Feast or left out? What do you want? You choose, you know, it's your choice. But I want to urge you, choose feast. Okay, let's pray. Now, I am doing this in the vo- voice and tone of an evangelistic talk. And that's partly because I'm imagining myself into slightly alien context as a guest speaker. And I'm not saying that you're quite as colloquial as this every week when you've got the same people. But it's all on a scale. And I'm just saying, when you've got non-Christians there, you're trying to preach persuasively. This is... And also, of course, you're, you're teaching your Christians how to speak, speak about the faith to non-Christians. You're giving them the words. And incidentally, um, I start all my sermons with a prayer, and the prayer goes something like, uh, Dear God, thank you that your spirit continues to speak to us today through the Bible. Right, that's my... Theology of Revelation and the Bible for all the charismatics and non-Christians, uh, Christians who are here. All right. So thank you that your Spirit continues to speak to us today through the Bible. Um, we asked um, whether we're unfamiliar with Christian th- or whether we're new to Christian things and finding it all a bit weird and complicated, or have been Christians for many years and love Jesus. Please, would you help us to concentrate, to understand, and to respond properly? Amen. What I'm saying to the non-Christians, there may only be a few of them, but what I'm really saying to the Christians is, this is a place you can bring your non-Christian friends to with safety, because I will respect and be kind to non-Christians. Um, so and you can go with something like, oh Lord, may the word be a lamp into our feet and light to our hearts today. If you think people can understand it, then yes. <laughs> but in a, non, in a non-Christian talk, it, it depends who's turned up. Yeah. Uh, you know, if it's, the, if it's the local prime minister and the judge, and, and you know, you might say um, something a bit more formal. Yeah. Um, and of course, your tone will, will vary. Sometimes you can be very quiet and uh, be very powerful. So ranting and raving isn't always the best yeah. way. But sometimes, when you get to the serious parts, if your emotions don't match your words, people don't believe your words. Richard, clearly this passage points to a call. Yep. John Donald, how often do you get to a call? Or it just depends on the passage. Well, every passage is for repentance and faith, according to the Apostle. Yep. 
So um, what I often finish my talks is I say, look, why don't I give you a moment of quiet to think about what you want to do, what you're going to do, mm-hmm. about what needs to change. And I'll give them 30 seconds. Uh, and and the, the, the team at church, of course, all asking, we have to have a coffee question now. But, you know, so I have to think up, you know, so, um, you know, I, I might think... Um, have we gone through the door yet? Might be a coffee question that he says. Okay, so it's supposed to kind of help the Christians with their conversation, guys. I'm supposed to say, have you gone through the door yet? That's, that's too direct, but you want something really yeah. more. So like, um, what's the greatest danger of you missing the door? Is it a, is it a distraction? Is it distance? Is it yeah. dismiss? Yeah. Thanks, mate. Excuse me, sorry. No problem. See you back. Yeah, so yeah, those sort of ones are tricky because sometimes it's hard for the preacher to come up with those things. You must need the meeting leader to come up with that. He's yeah. just listened to it. But they're asking me, and I, at the moment, they're trying, I'm going with it. It's part of this whole thing of getting everybody into ministry. So everybody's got all kinds of ideas about how to do church. <laughs> but anyway. Um, further thoughts? Uh, okay, so I'm, I'm preaching on judges. Twelve tomorrow, which is it's completely different to this in some ways. Um, in, in old, so when you're doing Old Testament stuff, um, at what point are you going to try and hook the gospel in? Well, I take it it's all there to understand the gospel. Yeah. So what I might do at the beginning is say, um, look, for those of us who, uh, who have been with us in recent weeks, you'll have heard what I'm doing in those first few statements. I'm giving you the whole book of Judges. Right. Yeah. Okay, so the book of Judges is part of the Old Testament that prepares us for Jesus mm-hmm. by um, giving us various kinds of leaders to show us what kind of leader Jesus is. Mm-hmm. So there are prophets and there are priests and there are kings and there are judges. Mm-hmm. And this book is all about those judges. They're not the kind of judges we've seen. They're, they're not the kind of judges that uh, we think of, you know, sitting in courts and all the rest of it. Yeah. They're uh, spirit-filled warrior deliverers. So okay. they're warriors, they're heroes, they're champions. Yeah. And uh, sometimes the Bible contrasts bad champions to show us what, how Jesus is better. Sometimes it gives us good champions to show how Jesus is, is the same. Today we're looking at Othniel. Uh, well, today we're, oh, I can't remember, chapter 12, it's chapter 12. Japheth, or whatever you say his name. Japheth. Japheth, whatever. I can't remember, is he a bad one or a good one? He's, He's a high the, He makes the deal. Okay. He does, He's the one the idiot that says whatever comes out of the door. He's a hot head. Okay. Yeah. That one's good. Okay, so hopefully your your sermon is um, uh, so. See, you've just summarised it. He's the hothead. I've see. I've actually got the week after that, where where the tribe from across the river comes and says, "You didn't call us. We're going to kill you because of it." And then so then he chops them up because they can't. And yeah, there's, but that's basically what's going on. I'm surprised you're doing. A, a book in the Old Testament in such small chunks. So if I was doing Judges, yeah. I would do, say, six sermons. Right. And I would... I've worked at the sections, and I would <coughs> pick out one. So I might do one on chapters one and two. Right. Um, with Othniel as my conclusion, because yeah. he's the model for the rest. Then I yeah. might do Gideon. Then I might do... Because I'm really stretching the... Um, Patience of the non-Christian and the new Christian, unless um, 
you know, the thing with narrative, it takes an awful long time to say a few things. And of course, there are big statements yeah. out there in the narrative. So, it, you know, it's kind of the, the velvet that there's the diamond statements every so often. Yeah. Uh, and I haven't done uh, Judges 12, so I'm weak on that. Okay, yeah. But um, I've still got some skepticism about spending so long yeah. over an extended Emily, narrative. Uh, we're doing it over most of this term, so eight weeks. So we did we did the first half of the book a few years ago, and then we finished off the second half of the book. Okay. But there is actually a, a there's fair, loads of yeah. There's a lot in it. But in one sense, you've just explained to me yeah. why I wouldn't have done it. Yeah. That you did the first half a few years ago, and now you didn't sing like now. So you haven't given them the unit of judges. So in other words, you've got people yeah. now who weren't there. So you're yeah. just taking. So they're all in your hands instead of giving them the book. Yeah. So it's just a different approach, oh, yeah. And, yeah. and you may have people who's there for a long time, and therefore you can afford to do things like that. But um, so I'm going to do the whole of Mark's Gospel one go. We do the Romans one go all the way through, and right. if I'm going to do Old Testament, so Joel, my my colleague is doing Joel in four, because um, I think there are four sections there. Joshua I did in four, because um, I want them to get whole units. Okay, all right. And if there's lots of text, because like in Joshua. You just pick, you know, um, Caleb uh, in the middle of chapters 11 to 19 because it's, and you're doing the whole section 11 to 19 by way of introduction, so that's your second stab point, um, and that's your structure, that's your given. So remember, there are four sections of Joshua, entering the land, conquering the land, distributing the land, keeping the land, right? We're now in the third section, distributing the land. It's all about inheritance and uh, read all these lists. It's very exciting because he's talking about the day when Jesus, our Joshua, mm-hmm. will give us our inheritance in heaven. And we're going to uh, read about one bloke who, um, who changed his life uh, in order to get his inheritance. His name's Caleb. Right, let's read Caleb. So, uh, and then you, so that, that's your third point. So yeah, yeah. this passage is all about one guy, contrasts with the um, um, Transjordan tribes um, in chapter 40, in chapter, wherever it is, 17. Um, so, the 14 is this hero Caleb, and there are three sections to it. So, I'll just do a, a small chunk of it as an example mm-hmm. of the whole piece. Okay. All but, um, yes, I We did we... Exodus like that. So, okay. we did Exodus all in, in one hit. Great. And that was good. That yeah, worked good. quite well. Yeah. yeah, and that's a great, because Exodus is a teaching redemption. Yeah. It's just illustrating. Christ's redemption. It's also a good opportunity to do what you were saying while lamenting before. Okay, they're doing it so there's mostly people aren't reading their Bibles. Here's an opportunity for, for a term or six weeks to really help them to read through Exodus. Yeah. And can you, that's the one you do the Facebook, let's all read it together, let's all do yeah. it. And see, some of them are not going to do it, some of them will. Um, yeah. That's the way you get the text that you're never going to touch on Sunday because it's just too big a chunks. But you are going to hopefully get some of them to have read. We've often found that quite successful, and you focus on something like that. Yeah. yeah. And I am sympathetic now. Uh, you know, for all, nearly all my ministry, I've, I've had the conviction that you can do any book of the Bible in my preaching on a Sunday. I am now sympathetic to those who say, I can't do justice to everything on a Sunday. In other words, because yeah. our teaching program is not just Sunday. I can do Esther in small groups. I can do uh, Zechariah in small groups. I don't have to do Zechariah on a Sunday. I do in the program for the church. I have to think, well, where are they going to get Zechariah then? Because it's the yeah. word of God. 
but I'm not convinced that I, I have to do 10 on Zechariah because I did 10 on Mark's Gospel. Yeah. Um, in other words... So it's a flat earth approach to the Bible. It is. It is. We're just going to work our way through 66 books. We'll start here and we'll finish there. Yeah. That says there's no texturing in the Bible. Yeah, there's no waiting. There's no waiting in the Bible. Yeah. So, you know, the, the top six books in the Bible have got to be Genesis, Psalms, Isaiah, and then John, Romans, and Hebrews. So those three, those six, sorry, have all had a, a whole year dedicated to them. Right. Because they are the massive six. I've never done Isaiah because I've told the congregation that I can't do it. And that's part of a studied commitment to saying the Bible is bigger than me. Yeah. So I can't do everything. And you're a woman. And I'm a wimp. <laughs> yeah. So it is. It is slightly to yeah. save them from thinking. Excellent. Richard's going to do this next. He's going to do that next. Richard can do anything. No. I would have done Isaiah way before. Oh, Ezekiel. 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 Yeah. But it's partly, I'm trying to communicate by that, that we are humble, humbled under his word. His word sometimes just destroys us. We just can't cope. It's too much. Mm-hmm. And I do bits from Isaiah. I do four, four services. Just say he's, rarely, he's rarely done a whole series in John's Gospel for exactly that reason. Who's that? Philip Jensen. Yeah. So for years he said, I, just don't, I, don't, I don't think I can plumb the depths of this. I just think it's too yeah. hard. <laughs> yeah. uh, we're much more comfortable than Matthew. Same sort of thing. If that comes back to the question about framing a whole preaching program over a year and over some years yeah. and how you do that. Um, and there'll be a variety. That's one thing. A, a church startup, you know, a brand new church, you're probably thinking solely different to the way you're thinking now about Dundonald. Yes. Um, uh, but I, I am. See, the weakness of doing what I've just done with you is that that is a kind of. You could easily think it's a one off sermon. It's got high conversion impact what it doesn't have is gee I love coming to this church because I'm learning so much more all the time to it so it's high impact but uh, low instructional value um, so you know our time is nearly gone but so I'm not going to try and take you there but in Revelation 19 which is the other passage I'll do on Sunday uh, in preaching through Revelation for example which I did in about 10 or 12 I think we may spent most of the year actually Maybe in Revelation only as well. Um, in Revelation 19, with the return of, of Jesus, I would give an, an introduction to the chapter structure of, of uh, Revelation, which I've worked hard on over the years. So I, I feel like I've got an exciting insight now into how the all the sections fit together, the seven trumpets, and you know the chaos, the destruction, and all that. Um, and then in dealing with that passage, have we got five minutes? Uh, yeah, it's, it's about to get to 12, but you want to go a bit longer, so... No, 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 well, the guy's getting tired. Yeah, um, we definitely have a break, we this one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, that passage, then, instead of doing it verse, two verses, then two verses, then two verses, hmm. it's better done, I think, by saying, there are four names that mean he's God. There are four activities that mean he's judging. He, he will judge. And there are four descriptions that show he's terrifying. So you're actually plum and that deals with all the text, but because it's all jumbled up, it isn't done structurally. Mm. Um, but I'm still making indicative statements. The four names show he's God. 
The four activities show he's judge. The four descriptions show he's terrified. And so you, um, you know, in the four activities, you've got <coughs> he will crush them with his iron scepter. You know, he, he will cast them into the wine press of, of wrath. Um, so you're collecting together uh, features in it. So it doesn't have to be two verses and two verses and two verses. Uh, in the epistles, it would be. But then you have to work really hard on the illustrations. And changing gear. You know, pace, pitch, pause, pace. So just on that, just we'll finish with this. Pace, pitch, and pause when you're in the delivery. Pace, the speed with which you say something. When you speak slowly, you are saying something important. Uh, pitch, just, uh, just change the, the volume. So the pitch of your voice just wakes people up and says, come back, I know you're wondering, but uh, uh, you look a bit tired over there, so I'm just going to change your pitch just to get you back in the room. And, uh, and then pause, because the most powerful impact moments are when you say nothing. 